I'm Emily Kate, and this is We the Voters. Hi, and welcome to the second episode of the We the Voters podcast. I'm your host, Emily Kate Topcheski. I'm the founder and editor-in-chief at We The Voters, which is basically a fancy way of saying that this project is just me, so I wear a lot of hats. I'm a podcaster, an editor, a producer, a writer, a filmmaker, a travel coordinator, a social media manager, and way more. We The Voters began in 2019 when I set off on the road to understand the many ways U.S. citizens are more alike than different. So, if you're a new listener, welcome, and if you're a returning listener, welcome back. I wanted to take a second before diving into this episode to say thank you for the outpouring of support after the first episode dropped last week. I loved listening to and reading all of your reactions, so keep them coming. This community brings me so much joy. Now, today's episode is a bit about going back to basics, a question that seems to turn up over and over again in politics, free speech, namely what it is what it covers, and where it applies. So let's get to it. While free speech is the center of many heated discussions in U.S. culture today, it is actually more widely protected by the courts in the 21st century than it has ever been before. But perhaps I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go back to the beginning. Or almost the beginning. Free speech has roots throughout much of human history, but because we're focusing on its implications in U.S. culture, I want to focus solely on its history in the United States. Free speech was first formally protected in the Bill of Rights signed into law by Congress in 1791. But this was not the first free speech protection proposed. It was simply the one agreed upon, the one that was signed into law. James Madison introduced his own version of the speech and press protections to the House of Representatives back in 1789, saying, quote, The people shall not be deprived or abridged of their right to speak, to write, or to publish their sentiments, and the freedom of the press as one of the great bulwarks of liberty shall be inviolable, unquote. Now, his colleagues tweaked his language before it was sent to the Senate, who then tweaked it again. These edits included changes like, quote, the right of people to peaceably assemble and consult for their common good, and, quote, to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Finally, after much debate and discussion, it was combined with religious protections and became the First Amendment, which was signed into the Bill of Rights. As a reminder, the First Amendment officially reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. But despite this foundation, free speech was almost immediately under question in the United States. On July 14, 1798, President John Adams signed the Alien and Sedition Acts into law. These acts punished people who wrote or said false, scandalous, or malicious statements against the government. President Adams pushed them through mainly because he was mad about his critics, and he wanted to restrict how much and what they could say about him. In 1801, Congress let the Sedition Act expire under the new Jefferson administration. President Jefferson, in turn, pardoned all the people convicted under these acts. 25 years later, free speech is once again restricted as the U.S. House of Representatives adopted the gag rules in 1836. These rules, which were later repealed in 1844, prevented the discussion of anti-slavery proposals in Congress. And in 1873, the Comstock Law was passed. This law was the first comprehensive anti-obscenity law enacted federally, and it directly targets free speech. Under this law, it is illegal to send obscene or lewd materials or any information related to contraception or abortion in the mail. In 1897, the U.S. Supreme Court decided that the government can restrict speech on public property in the case of Davis v. Massachusetts. In this case, preacher William Davis argued that requiring permits violated both free speech and free assembly protections, but the courts ruled the other way. In their ruling, municipal governments had nearly complete regulatory discretion, saying that cities could restrict open-air speech on public property as fully as homeowners could under their own roofs. This, in history, is known as the first free speech standard, the, quote, public park, 
as private house rule. And it stood until 1939, when the decision was implicitly reversed in Hague versus the Committee for Industrial Organization. So, to recap, in just over 100 years since passing the Bill of Rights, free speech protections under the First Amendment had been called under question or restricted four major times under the law. But that doesn't include the numerous times the press was restricted or punished for free speech, primarily during the Civil War, nor does it illustrate the wide scope of restrictions brought on by these laws. Let's continue on to the 20th century. During World War I, the Supreme Court decided a series of cases that defined limitations in free speech. In 1917, Congress passed the Espionage Act, which outlawed interference in military operations and recruitment. When a man was arrested under this act for urging young men to dodge the draft, the Supreme Court upheld his conviction by creating the clear and present danger standard and deciding that the government was allowed to limit free speech in cases where the speech posed a real and legitimate threat to national security. In 1918, Congress passed the country's Second Sedition Act, which forbade spoken or printed criticism of the U.S. government, the Constitution, or the flag. It was later repealed in 1921. In 1919, the Espionage Act was called into question when the Supreme Court upheld the convictions of five people charged who had circulated pamphlets criticizing the U.S. government and its involvement in World War I. Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes dissented in that case and laid the foundation of the marketplace of ideas theory. This theory states that, quote, the ultimate good desired is better reached by a fair trade in ideas, that the best test of truth is the power of thought to get itself accepted in the competition of the market. The 1920s brought about two more cases that grounded our understanding of First Amendment principles. A 1927 decision upheld a criminal syndicate law, leading Justice Louis Brandeis to write, quote, If there be a time to expose through discussion the falsehood and fallacies, to avert the evil by the processes of education, the remedy to be applied is more speech, not enforced silence. And later, a 1929 decision upheld the denial of citizenship to a pacifist immigrant who said she wouldn't personally take up arms in defense of the country. In historic dissent, Justice Holmes wrote, If there is any principle of the Constitution that more imperatively calls for attachment than any other, it is the principle of free thought, not free thought for those who agree with us, but freedom for the thought that we hate. These two writings are precedents still called upon today, particularly in discussion of why the United States is resistant to enacting a hate speech law. The 1930s saw decisions that further protected free speech. The Supreme Court recognized for the first time that protected speech may be nonverbal or symbolic. It also ruled that peaceable assembly for a lawful discussion could not be made a crime. And it wrote that free speech embraces, at the very least, the liberty to discuss publicly and truthfully all matters of public concern without previous restraint or fear of subsequent punishment. But free speech was limited in the 1940s with the introduction of the Smith Act, which made it illegal to advocate for or incite a violent government coup. And then it largely came under attack in the 1950s when the House Un-American Committee and McCarthyism rose into power and influence in both political and public spheres. The 1960s, on the other hand, saw that protections of free speech were once again expanded. This includes Supreme Court rulings in favor of state and public school employees, saying it was unconstitutional to fire or not hire them based on their politics, and allowed these employees to raise their concern in public forums, like newspaper op-eds. In 1971, the Supreme Court ruled that offensive and profane language were protected under free speech. Later in the decade, the court would define what obscenity meant and its value in our society. But in 1972, it was determined that citizens do not have a First Amendment right to express themselves on privately owned property. This furthers the distinction that the First Amendment protects speech from censorship by the government, but it does not protect free speech from other private citizens or organizations. This distinction was upheld in court decisions throughout the 1970s. And at the end of the decade, the Illinois Supreme Court ruled that a neo-Nazi group could march through Skokie, Illinois, a community which at that time comprised of mostly Jewish residents and Holocaust survivors. This decision gave precedent for numerous other extremist rallies throughout the coming decades, including the Charlottesville rally in 2017. But let's not get too ahead of ourselves. The 1980s brought about restrictions on commercial speech protections, limitations of censorship in school libraries, and conflicting opinions about burning the flag. 
In June 1989, the Supreme Court ruled in Texas v. Johnson that burning the American flag is a constitutionally protected form of free speech. But just four months later, Congress passed the Flag Protection Act. This act made it legal to punish anyone who knowingly mutilates, defaces, physically defiles, burns, maintains on the floor or ground, or tramples upon any U.S. flag. The following June, the Supreme Court invalidated this act, finding that the statute violates free speech. And following that ruling, Congress considered but ultimately rejected a constitutional amendment that specified their right to prohibit burning of the flag. In 1992, the Supreme Court ruled against a Minnesota ordinance, saying that hate speech restrictions violated the First Amendment. Which will bring us to today, or at least the 21st century. Now, at the top of this episode, I asked three questions about free speech. What is free speech? In general, the First Amendment guarantees the right to express ideas and information. It means, essentially, that you are allowed to express your opinion without government censorship. What does free speech cover? We determined that free speech says that both a person's words and their actions, in most cases, are protected from government restrictions. It covers the right to speak your mind, including in cases of vulgarity and hate speech, but it also covers your right to act, including both burning and flying the flag. But it does not cover defamation, violent threats, fighting words, obscenity, child pornography, and commercial advertising. These are all cases where speech can legally be restricted by the government. So now it's time to get to that third question. What are the implications of free speech in our society today? In the last two decades, the Supreme Court has heard cases that further define what speech is and how it's protected. In 2003, the court ruled on a Virginia law that banned cross-burning and said it was largely constitutional. In 2006, the court upheld a ruling that when public employees make statements that relate to their official duties, they are not speaking as private citizens, and they aren't exempt from the consequences. In 2011, the court ruled that picketing on public land was protected expression, even when it caused emotional distress to others. And in 2017, the court ruled that, quote, speech may not be banned on the ground that it expresses ideas that offend. This final statement, that big question about hate speech, sits at the heart of the episode today. Hate speech is defined as speech that incites violence or hatred against another person or group based on their race, their nationality, their sexual orientation, their gender, their religion, or another grouping characteristic. Over the years, contradictory Supreme Court rulings have deemed some hate speech unconstitutional, like words that invoke imminent violence. But it's also ruled that other hate speech is protected speech, like in that 2017 ruling, which said that speech can't be banned on the ground that it offends. So, does hate speech have a place in our society? Would it be better to ban it completely, or should it be allowed without restriction? People feel passionately about the side they fall on, and the question of hate speech in U.S. culture has become a heated debate in political and public spheres. After the break, we're going to break down the first side of the conversation, that all speech, including hate speech, should be protected under the First Amendment. Then, later in the episode, we'll take a look at the issue from the other side. But first, let's take that break. And we're back. All right, so let's dive into the side A, the idea that all speech, including hate speech, should be protected under the First Amendment. On a warm August day in 2017, hundreds of people gathered in Charlottesville, Virginia to participate in a Unite the Right rally. In the weeks leading up to the event, the rally was promoted as a free speech rally and aimed to save the statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee, which was going to be removed from public property. But on that day in August, the message was markedly different than advertised. Hundreds of people, including alt-right, neo-Nazi, KKK, and white supremacist groups gathered in Charlottesville to march and exercise their right to free speech and freedom of assembly. Protesters chanted calls like, You will not replace us, and Blood and Soil, which is a direct echo of chants from Nazi Germany prior to and during World War II. Many of those protesters present were armed with rifles, batons, or other weapons. A line of law enforcement officers wearing riot gear separated this crowd from a group of counter-protesters, hundreds of individuals who turned out to promote their anti-fascist and multicultural beliefs. But despite the police presence and a declared state of emergency by Virginia's governor, violence between the two groups was active throughout the day. 
The violence ended in the early afternoon when Unite the Right protester James Field drove his car into a group of counter-protesters, backed it up, and drove forward again. He killed counter-protester Heather Heyer and injured 19 more. In the wake of this violence, many people wondered why this rally was allowed to happen in the first place. The answer, in short, was free speech. But since it's not just that simple, let's listen in on a short clip from a 60 Minutes interview with Anthony Romero, the executive director from the ACLU. In Charlottesville, the ACLU represented the white supremacists in their rally. And there were members of the ACLU who were outraged by that. They didn't think that the ACLU should be representing people on the far right, but the organization was standing for free speech, free assembly, free expression. I agree with ultimately that this is the right call for us to represent groups, even the ones we hate, and even groups whose ideology we detest. We spoke to Anthony Romero, who's the executive director now of the ACLU. I can understand why a young organizer focused on racial justice says, why are we spending our money defending the Nazis? And that's a worthwhile conversation for us to have, to talk about our theory of change. Yet, if you grant government the ability to deny anyone the right of freedom of speech or freedom of association, you, you, you imperil it for everyone. Do you think that the ACLU needs to take a less absolutist position on freedom of speech no. than you have in the past? No, it's essential, especially now. I often have to put the shoe on the other foot for some of our folks to say, it might have been the Nazis who were being censored in Charlottesville, but in Maricopa County, it could be the Dreamers. Or in Oakland, it might be Black Lives Matter. The Supreme Court has decided time and time again throughout U.S. history that in most cases, hate speech is allowable under the First Amendment. And supporters of this interpretation, that no speech is censored, believe that all motions to censor speech is alarming, even if a person finds what is being said personally abhorrent. Jonathan Zimmerman, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, wrote this opinion in the New York Daily News. Quote, Across the political spectrum, a growing number of Americans want to deny that right to people they detest. And once you do that, you can visit any wrong upon them. He continues to say that his point is simply that hate speech is in the eye of the beholder, and that's why we need to protect it, no matter how vile or offensive it may seem. Proponents of no censorship say that trying to silence political enemies or specific hate speech is wrong, not because it's weak, but because it lacks strategy. When a person is focused on shutting others down, it can often galvanize the voice and the force of those being silenced. Censorship in public and digital spaces can often further radicalize extremists. It can make them feel, quote, part of the club, and like they're a martyr for free speech or the ideas they promote. Professor Zimmerman says that with the delicate state of U.S. politics, the last thing we should do is restrict free speech. And remember the historic precedent set in 1929 about protecting all speech? Some experts rely on Justice Holmes' words here that, quote, If there is any principle of the Constitution that more imperatively calls for attachment than any other, it is the principle of free thought. Not free thought for those who agree with us, but freedom for the thought that we hate. Essentially, he is arguing that there is merit to listening to those you agree with, but it is also important to know what people you can't stand are saying. For many activists and extremists, being censored strengthens resolve. The ACLU says that it feeds into their power and gives them something to sell. But by allowing and protecting all speech, you revoke their right to false outrage. Lee Rowland is an ACLU attorney. She had this to say about resisting the urge to censor. Quote, yes, there is power in hateful words, but there is also power in sass, in unwillingness to be goaded into a fight or to play the role of the censor, unquote. Professor Zimmerman writes in his New York Daily News op-ed that there are significant risks to letting the government define what is and isn't free speech. Just as easily as the government can silence someone you find abhorrent, a future administration could just as easily silence someone you agree with. So let's fast forward to 2021, to an event that happened just a few weeks ago. Following the events at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, now former President Donald Trump was barred from Twitter, Facebook, and other social media platforms. An official statement from Twitter said that, quote, In the context of horrific events this week, we made it clear on Wednesday that additional violations of the Twitter rules would potentially result in this very course of action. Our public interest framework exists to enable the public to hear from elected officials and world leaders directly. It is built on a principle that the people have a right to hold power to account in the open. 
The statement continued that, quote, However, we made it clear going back years that these accounts are not above our rules entirely and cannot use Twitter to incite violence, among other things. We will continue to be transparent around our policies and their enforcement. Within moments, a fierce debate about censorship and free speech ensued. While some people praised Big Tech's motion to remove former President Trump and other right-wing activists and extremists, others warned of the dangerous precedent being set. Let's listen in on an interview with Byron York when he appeared on Fox News a few weeks ago. Byron, it's my understanding that the American Civil Liberties Union is, uh, is, is suggesting that, that uh, canceling the president's account is the wrong thing to do. Anytime you have President Trump and the ACLU on the same side of anything, it's a, well, it's an interesting day. You're, you're absolutely right. And there is some uneasiness uh, among uh, some of the president's adversaries about this twi Twitter decision to deplatform uh, the president. Look, they're they're in favor of it. They would like to see Trump not have this enormous platform that he had with Twitter. And at the same time, they worry about the future and the precedent that this sets. If Twitter can remove the president's platform, they can remove somebody else's platform, and they're they're doing it quite a bit. And it could have big political implications in the future. Right, because, you know, these uh, big tech companies are primarily run by, um, you know, West Coast liberals. And if they don't like conservative voices, uh, you know, who's to say they, they don't shut down everybody that, that has political uh, ideas or ideology that they don't agree with? So does social media have the right to bar extremists? The short answer is yes. They are private companies and not held to the same standard as the government. But the long answer is a bit more nuanced. Social media platforms have faced increasing pressure to crack down against hate speech and misinformation over the last five years. A 2020 study from the Pew Research Center found that about two-thirds of Americans said they had either little or no confidence in social media companies' ability to determine false or misleading posts. And overall, 73% of Americans believe that it's either very or somewhat likely that these tech companies intentionally censor viewpoints they don't agree with. This appears clearly divided on party lines, with 90% of Republicans and 59% of Democrats responding yes. Now, these responses came as Facebook and Twitter fell under even more scrutiny to censor high-profile accounts last year. Twitter added fact-check and warning labels across their platform, including some to the former President Trump's tweets as early as last May. Vera Eidelman is an ACLU staff attorney, and she has concerns about the move in recent years to censor social media. Here's what she wrote in 2018. Quote, given Facebook's nearly unparalleled status as a forum for political speech and debate, it should not take down anything but unlawful speech, like incitement to violence. Otherwise, in attempting to apply more amorphous concepts not already defined in law, Facebook will often get it wrong. She says that given the enormous amount of speech uploaded to Facebook every day, attempting to filter out bad speech is a nearly impossible task. The use of algorithms and other artificial intelligence to try and deal with the volume is only likely to exacerbate the problem. And, just as easily as tech companies could ban speech from one side, the same rules would be enforced against the other. While some supporters of censoring hate speech celebrated the move to ban former President Trump, others warned of the dangerous precedent being set. Ms. Eidelman writes, If Facebook gives itself broader censorship powers, it will inevitably take down important speech and silence already marginalized voices. In 2017, a study found that when activists of color and white activists posted the exact same content, Facebook only censored the posts from people of color. And civil rights groups have reported that Facebook shut down live streams of users who documented their experience with police violence and suspended accounts or deleted posts of black women who posted about their experiences with racism. Ms. Edelman wrote that, quote, There is no question that giving the government the power to separate truth from fiction and to censor speech on that basis would be very dangerous. When it comes to the gatekeepers of the modern-day public square, we should hope for commitment to free speech principles. Which is, as a reminder, another important thing to recognize. Facebook, Twitter, and other tech companies are private entities, not public ones. Which means, frankly, the debate around First Amendment protections is largely theoretical. It's not bound by law. After all, remember, the First Amendment only protects free speech against government restrictions and censorship. As the Supreme Court ruled in 1972, the First Amendment does not protect private citizens and private property which some scholars are suggesting applies equally to private digital property. Clay Calvert is the director of the University of Florida First Amendment Project, 
and he says that policing hate speech online should be left up to private entities, not the government. He said, quote, ideally from a pro-free speech perspective, social media companies, much like private universities, would aspire to comport with First Amendment principles and at a minimum not discriminate against political speech based on viewpoint. However, realistically, Mr. Calvert says that these are for-profit businesses that privilege profits and their financial gains above institutional goals. Which raises the question on whether it will take Congress to step in to create a system when handling online censorship issues and free speech complaints. The other side has a rebuttal to this argument, and for clarity's sake, let's talk about it now. Side B, which is the side that argues only some speech should be protected under the First Amendment, says that it's not a violation of this amendment because these are private companies, not government spaces. And also, that deplatforming works. Let me explain. Some people say that deplatforming or revoking access to a social media platform is an effective way to make a person lose followers and clout. It happened when Infowars and their CEO, Alex Jones, were removed from social media in 2018. And now they'll say it will happen with former President Trump. Vox writer Asia Romana explains that major platforms like Twitter and Facebook act like gateways. They create opportunities for mainstream users to stumble across pages and be drawn into what's being said. When users are banned, they're now forced to move into smaller or more niche platforms, which creates extra hurdles for potential new fans. It disrupts a person's ability to communicate with their followers, which causes them to lose influence and eventually drift into obscurity. In the case of some extremists, it appears to work. A 2017 study found that after Reddit banned several subreddits or message boards where extremists gathered, hate speech decreased across the entire site. Essentially, public shaming and kicking someone off a platform reminds everyone else to behave better. Miss Romana writes in her article on Vox that since Facebook, Twitter, and other social networking sites are not public entities, they are not required to adhere to the free speech protections. They have the power to enforce their user guidelines, which often ban things like pornography, hate speech, and racist slurs. Following the former president's ban on tech platforms, the spread of misinformation about the 2020 election seemed to slow immediately. And despite threats of violence at all 50 state capitals and in Washington, D.C., the transition of power to a new administration went smoothly. Ms. Romana says this is all because deplatforming works. It slows the spread of hate across the internet, and that it's not only effective, it's sometimes necessary. She writes that, quote, Seeing tech companies attempt to prioritize the public good over extremist demand for a megaphone is an important step forward. Now, after hearing that counter-argument, let's go back to side A, which makes the argument that no speech should be censored. Last year, many conservatives began moving from other social media platforms to Parler, which advertised itself as a free speech social networking platform. In the days following January 6th, Parler's popularity gained momentum as both conservatives and right-wing extremists flocked to its service. And then, its servers were shut down by Amazon, which was previously hosting the backend technology of the phone app. Once again, a debate sparked. Was this move responsible, enforcing terms of service and standing up against hate speech? Or did it set another dangerous precedent of censorship to come? Here's what Parler CEO John Matze had to say in an interview on Fox News. There's been attacks on Parler because of your open free speech approach. What is the reason that they're giving you for shutting you down? Well, they, like I said, they, they claim that we somehow were responsible for the, the, you know, what they call the insurrection on the 6th, which, you know, we, we've never allowed violence. You know, we've never allowed any of this stuff on our platform. Um, and, and we don't even have a way to coordinate an event on our platform. So they somehow want to make us responsible. And this seems to me uh, like an excuse to just basically eliminate free speech at a convenient time, you know, for them. And it does because, you know, we've grown so much. We were number one on the App Store the day that we were, you know, removed for quote-unquote violence. Um, and the same day, the horrible violence was trending on Twitter. And so it's an obvious double standard. It's obvious collusion. And they're doing it, um, you know, to stifle free speech and competition in the marketplace. And this could happen to literally anybody. While private companies are not held, technically, to uphold First Amendment protections like the government is, they do have an outsized role in the daily life of many U.S. citizens today. In a 2017 opinion, Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote, quote, We cannot appreciate yet its full dimensions and vast potential to alter how we think, express ourselves, and define who we want to be. Justice Kennedy goes on to say that the internet, and social media platforms in particular, were among the most important places for the exchange of views, and he compared the internet as a public forum to the public square of years past. This opinion observes one of the biggest questions in recent years. 
With more adults being active on Facebook and other tech platforms, what is their role in moderating debate or content? What is their civic responsibility to uphold the First Amendment, even if they are not held to uphold it by law? Justice Kennedy's opinion asserts the idea that long-standing public forum doctrines should evolve for digital spheres present in current culture. Danielle Keats-Citron is a University of Maryland law professor. She explains that due to hate speech laws in Europe and social media's growing reach, she's not surprised that platforms are pulling back on the First Amendment. In a 2018 Notre Dame Law Review article, she writes that, quote, Given what we do know about the bluntness of algorithms coupled with vague definitions, the more speech we will see filtered out and removed. That speech will likely include critiques of hate speech and dissenting speech. That is my worry, unquote. Yale Law School professor Jack Balkin also weighed in on social media and free speech in an essay in the Columbia Law Review in 2018. In this piece, he determined that free speech was no longer between the government and a private individual, but instead, it was more like a triangle. It included the government, the individual, and internet companies. Acknowledging a changing understanding of free speech brings its own challenges, he says, including creating problems of collateral censorship and digital prior restraint. But the way he sees it, private internet companies have a responsibility to protect freedom of speech online. Professor Balkan writes that, quote, Generally speaking, basic internet services should adopt policies of non-discrimination with respect to the content and viewpoint of traffic that flows through them or is stored on them. So while he wrote this argument in 2018, we can extrapolate a judgment with this logic. Essentially, he is arguing that tech companies have a responsibility to not censor the content or the companies they work with. In the name of free speech, they should not exercise editorial control. So, in the case of Parler, was Amazon Web Services in the right to remove the social networking site from their servers? Some citizens and experts, like those who agree with Balkan's 2018 opinion, would say no. And others even assert that doing so was dangerous, to free speech and to country unity. Justin Brady is a tech entrepreneur, and he wrote this in a Des Moines Register op-ed. Quote, Parler's removal from the internet may very well have been the shot heard round the world in a pending tech civil war. Meanwhile, Facebook, which is reportedly just as responsible, if not more, for allowing capital rioters to organize using its service, remains online and unscathed. Unquote. Now, this is a big claim. What does he mean? Brady alleges that the removal of Parler and the censoring of former President Trump sends a problematic message. If you don't like it, leave. And the problem is, he says, they will. He writes, quote, As we lay the foundations for two separate internets and the possible creation of left and right tech companies, we can choose instead to stop the communication breakdown. It's quite simple. Since both righties and lefties for now seemingly agree in a free market solution, let your money talk. With this decision, he's advocating for us to put our money where our mouth is. Support only platforms who put forth the values you agree with. Now, let's listen in on an ABC7 interview with Neil Johnson, who agrees, the removal of Parler and the shunning of conservative voices on social media creates a dangerous precedent. Parler, a social media platform popular with Trump supporters looking for an alternative to Facebook and Twitter, was taken offline by Amazon Web Services. It's a move George Washington University professor Neil Johnson says will have consequences. It's a bad idea from the point of view that, as I say, it's like a rallying cry. The online communities feeling threatened will become even more united, he says. We demand the freedom to be our uncensored selves. The subsequent shutdown of some websites is sparking international concern. What about when it comes to the First Amendment? Is this even legal to do something like this? Yeah, that's a great question. Would it be, Ill- would it be illegal if I have a bug problem to go and shut down my neighbor's yard. Well, obviously that is not legal because we have well-defined laws for what you do in terms of property. But when property is information and spaces online, that's something that governments tend to back off of and there is very little regulation, if any. A little more than a week until President-elect Joe Biden's inauguration and tensions are growing. You know, what do people do when they get pushed to a they find they feel they're pushed to a, a limit. You get pushed like an animal into survival mode. Anything could happen. Parler was blocked as an attempt to curb right-wing extremism, but instead, many of its users just migrated to other sites to converse and spread information, including Gab and Telegram. Telegram has three main components: channels, groups, which are private or public, and secret chats, where users can have private encrypted one-on-one conversations. 
During inauguration week, Telegram said that it took down hundreds of calls to violence on public channels, including a channel that showed how to make and conceal homemade guns and bombs in the days leading up to inauguration. But overall, moderation appears to be lax on the platform for extremists on both sides of the aisle. In example, the brief terms of service forbid violence on public channels, but don't mention bans on violence in private channels or groups. This move of extremists from one app to another illustrates the argument here in Side A. All speech should be protected. By banning hate speech, this side argues, you do not reduce violent crime or hate. The United States saw a record high of hate crime murders in 2019, according to a report by the FBI. These crimes are described as motivated by bias towards race, ethnicity, ancestry, religion, sexual orientation, disability, gender, and gender identity. 51 people died in hate crime incidents in 2019, the highest figure since the federal government began tracking these numbers in the early 1990s. But the number of hate crimes committed is significantly higher. 7,314 hate crimes were reported to law enforcement agencies in 2019. This was a 2.7% increase from the year before, which reversed the trend of incidents declining in the three years prior. More than half these crimes were motivated by race, ethnicity, or ancestry. 21% were motivated by religion, and 16% by sexual orientation. But experts suggest that the number of hate crimes in the U.S. is actually higher than the one reported. Hate crimes are consistently underreported, both by victims not wanting to come forward and by police departments not being mandated to report the incidents to federal agencies. Out of more than 15,000 law enforcement agencies that participate in the FBI's data collection, only about 2,000 of them reported hate crimes in 2019. So, would banning hate speech curb the rise of violence seen in the United States? Listen in on what Nadine Strassum had to say on the subject. Ms. Strassum is the former president of the ACLU. But the argument 99.9% of the time starts and ends with the potential harm of free speech. Um, those who advocate censorship never examine whether censorship is going to be effective in addressing, redressing, reducing the harm. They never address whether censorship, to the contrary, is going to do more harm than good. And every situation that I'm aware of, uh, censorship actually ends up uh, being ineffective in addressing the harms at stake at best or counterproductive at worst. So uh, disinformation, well, are we going to say that empowering Mark Zuckerberg and the other titans of Silicon Valley to decide that certain speech is untrue, is that actually going to solve our political problems? I think to the contrary, that is as threatening to democracy as it is to individual freedom. Uh, likewise, with respect to so-called hate speech that conveys discriminatory ideas against traditionally marginalized or excluded groups, every hate speech law around the world to this day is disproportionately enforced consistently against the very minority groups who are hoped to be protected. And we shouldn't be surprised at that. And other scholars seem to agree. Jonathan Turley is a professor at George Washington University, and he wrote this in a USA Today op-ed. Quote, free speech is in a free fall in Europe, where countries like France, Germany, and England routinely charge people for speech deemed offensive or insulting to any group. None of this, mind you, has put a dent in the ranks of actual fascists and haters. Neo-Nazis are holding huge rallies by adopting new symbols and coded words, while Germany arrested a man on a train because he had a Hitler ringtone on his phone. Unquote. And rising numbers of hate crimes in Europe appear to back Turley's assessment. The European Union officially criminalized hate speech in 2008. This decision was effective throughout the entire EU, and it made it illegal to incite violence or hatred towards another group or person based on race, nationality, religion, ethnicity, or cultural heritage. The limitations on speech are valid in person, in action, and online. But a report from the National Human Rights Advisory Committee in France found that anti-Semitic acts had raised more than 70% in the country in 2018. In Germany, anti-Semitic crimes, which includes hate speech, rose 20%. And elsewhere in Europe, hate crimes had more than doubled in the five years between 2013 and 2018. So, some scholars argue, it doesn't appear that limiting hate speech actually reduces hate crimes. But, if limiting hate speech does not appear to have an effect on quelling it, 
Why do so many activists believe that the government should censor speech in the first place? This is a lot to take in, so let's take a quick break and we'll come back with the other side of this discussion, that some speech, but not hate speech, should be protected under the First Amendment. Once again, we are back. Before the break, we looked at the debate from one side of the argument. And now it's time for the other side, that only some speech, but not hate speech, should be protected under the First Amendment. So, should the government control or ban speech that incites hatred? Should it penalize people who use hate speech? On January 6, thousands of the former President Trump supporters gathered in Washington, D.C. for a Save America rally. This rally, held in Freedom Plaza, included speeches from right-wing activists and the former president himself, before supporters marched down Pennsylvania Avenue on their way to the U.S. Capitol building. Once at the Capitol, the group breached the building and attempted to halt the process of certifying electoral votes. Five people died during the riot, and dozens more were injured. Millions of people around the United States started demanding answers and accountability. As we discussed in Side A, Twitter and other social media services temporarily and then permanently banned now former President Trump from their platforms. Parler was taken down by their servers due to a dispute on platform moderation. And then lawmakers and activists began pointing their fingers at the now former president, saying that President Trump's words incited the violence to come. Does this make him responsible for the actions his supporters and right-wing extremist groups took at the Capitol? Some people say yes. Let's hear what presidential historian Alan Lichtman had to say in an interview with CTV News, which is a Canadian television network. Well, I'm not a lawyer, so I can't parse the law out for you, but certainly he is morally responsible for what happened. You know, he knew exactly what he was doing, and he knew exactly what the results would be. And even today, as we saw this horrific violence, and apparently someone was killed, some poor woman was killed in the course of this violent uprising. And Donald Trump gave the most tepid, the most deceptive, the most disingenuous response. Yeah, be peaceful, go home. But at the same time, ginning them up by repeating his utterly false claims that he won the election big, and this was a huge steal from him, and he'll never concede. Lawmakers from both sides of the aisle have stated that what the former president and his allies said between election night and January 6th helped set the course for the violence to come. The president tweeted in December, quote, Big protest in D.C. on January 6th. Be there. will be wild. And when the day came, now former President Trump spoke to his supporters in Freedom Plaza, saying, quote, when you win in a landslide and they steal it and it's rigged, it's not acceptable. Not acceptable. Unquote. As the crowds chanted fight for Trump, he continued, quote, They're not taking this White House. We're going to fight like hell. Unquote. It's these words and other claims that former President Trump made on the 6th and in the weeks leading up to it that are being called as evidence for why he should be held accountable for the violence that followed. Anthony Romero is the executive director at the ACLU, and he wrote, quote, Freedom of speech uses no bar to holding a president accountable for his unfounded bad faith effort to subvert the results of a free and fair election, unquote. The ACLU National Board of Directors met the weekend after the Capitol riot to unanimously pass a resolution calling for President Trump's impeachment. And when making this call, the ACLU cited five main allegations. His knowingly false statements to undermine the 2020 election, pressuring election officials in key swing states, seeking to disenfranchise voters, directing former Vice President Pence to block the certification of election results, and urging an unruly mob to riot at the Capitol on the 6th. Director Romero writes that, quote, holding the president accountable for his words on January 6th as part of that pattern does not run afoul to the First Amendment. The ACLU and some other activist groups believe that a president can be impeached for speech that a private citizen could not be prosecuted for. Once again, it's set in First Amendment precedent, the idea that public employees do not have the right to say whatever they want when speaking in their official capacity. Director Romero continues that, quote, whether the president has any First Amendment rights when speaking in his capacity as president has never been established. At a minimum, because of his role and authority, the president does not have the same freedom of speech as an ordinary citizen, unquote. In short, the ACLU argues that due to the enormous power the presidency holds, the president is held to a higher standard. 
Romero writes that a president who recklessly urged his followers to violate the law could be impeached, even if an ordinary citizen would not be convicted for the same words. Secondly, the ACLU argues that impeachment proceedings do not require a criminal conviction, but instead that the House and Senate have determined the president abused his office in a serious manner. In his defense of why former President Trump should be held accountable for his actions, Director Romero refers back to Brandenburg v. Ohio. That case, if you remember from the historical context discussion at the top of this episode, says that speech is protected unless it is intended to or is likely to produce imminent violence or other crimes. Charles Brandenburg was an avowed racist. He was convicted of an incitement to violence after holding a KKK rally in the late 1960s, and his case made it all the way up to the Supreme Court. Brandenburg's lawyers argued that his hateful ideas were protected by the First Amendment. And the Supreme Court largely agreed that his vicious talk was constitutional because it only fantasized about future violence. In a historic decision, the court decided that before the government can punish speech, there needs to be an immediate and specific risk of actual violence to a real person. Now, in 2021, some scholars allege that former President Trump supplied this risk in his own speech on the 6th. It happens, they say, when he suggested attendees go hold Congress and former Vice President Mike Pence accountable at the Capitol. Just hours later, Capitol rioters stormed through the building, hollering chants like hang Mike Pence and alleging that President Trump had given them orders on what to do next. So, by the precedents set in free speech, should former President Trump be held accountable? Some say yes, but others disagree. Supporters on side A have a rebuttal to this, which bears mentioning. So let's talk about it here for clarity's sake, just like we did when we discussed deplatforming a few minutes ago. The rebuttal to the accountability argument could be extrapolated from another case where the ACLU asked the Supreme Court to overturn a lower court ruling in Doe v. McKesson. In this case, an unnamed officer pressed charges against DeRay McKesson, a civil rights activist, for injuries he sustained while working at a 2016 protest in Louisiana. McKesson was present at the protest and encouraged others to join as well. The officer was allegedly injured after a protester threw a rock. But McKesson did not throw that rock nor did the officer allege that he did. Instead, the lawsuit claims that McKesson is responsible because he encouraged the protest. The ACLU argues that peaceful protesters cannot be held liable for the unintended, unlawful actions of others. They say that if the lower court ruling stands, which was made in favor of the officer, it would set a dangerous precedent and dismantle protections for protesters. So, by this logic, Is it truly possible to hold former President Trump accountable for the actions of his supporters and right-wing extremists at the Capitol? The ACLU is saying that McKesson cannot be held accountable for violence at the protest in 2016, despite being present and encouraging others to join as well. He is considered a leader in the Black Lives Matter and social justice movements, arguably an authority at the event. If applied to the events on January 6th, wouldn't former President Trump not be accountable by those same standards? Yes, he was present at the event, and he encouraged others to join as well. He was the president at times, so an undeniable authority at the event. But, by all accounts, he as an individual was a peaceful protester. He did not storm the Capitol or throw any punches. He was not even present during the movement down Pennsylvania Avenue, instead returning to the White House. Thus, some supporters on side A would say he cannot be held accountable. So, with that rebuttal in mind, let's head back to side B. Where does this entire argument about accountability land in terms of protecting free speech? By those who believe in a strict assessment that hate speech should be limited, the argument appears clear. Those who partake in violent speech, or even speech that infers violence, should be punished accordingly. Their speech and their platform should be limited and are not subject to First Amendment protections. If hate speech or other incitements to violence were more strictly controlled, some argue that the violence at the Capitol would have been quelled long before the 6th. Moving on, let's take a step away from the Capitol and look at some of the broader arguments for censoring hate speech, such as the efforts currently being made or examined on college campuses. Now, college activists are nothing new. For decades, students have been protesting speakers they distrust, pushing for more rights to speak their minds, and changing what is deemed appropriate free speech. Because of their nature as public and private institutions, colleges and universities are held to different standards and limitations in terms of protecting free speech. Public universities, for example, are considered to be public spaces, and thus are required to uphold the First Amendment wholly. On the other hand, private colleges and universities are allowed to make their own restrictions on free speech due to their status as private institutions. But whether private or public, many instructors are faced with challenges when balancing campus climate with free speech protections. 
Here's what Bill Drummond, a professor at UC Berkeley, had to say in a Wall Street Journal interview. Is there something different about students today Absolutely. versus Absolutely. 10 years ago, 20, 50 years ago? Yep. What's different? Students today are just not tolerant of opposing points of view. It's hard to sell them on opposing points of view because it makes them angry or uncomfortable. Drummond is among the liberal professors who are now speaking out against students that are intolerant to opposing views. He tells me that students are arriving at Berkeley more polarized than any time since the late 60s. We're asking, we're asking the people to know your They're coming from a lot of preconceived notions based on their identity group. There's certain things that will make them very uncomfortable and they will stop listening and they will rebel. Drummond's observations about students at his campus appear to be backed by recent studies. A 2017 report by the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education found that nearly half of U.S. college students believe that the First Amendment should not protect hate speech. 58% of students in the same study said that it was important to, quote, not be exposed to intolerant or offensive ideas. And disinviting speakers, which is a popular polarization trend that we talked about in last week's episode, is also largely popular among very liberal students, with more than three-quarters of them saying that they agreed with the action. On the other hand, only 38% of very conservative students agreed to disinvite speakers. Here's what a UC Berkeley student activist had to say about protesting speech students don't agree with. Some of these speakers who want to come to campus, yeah. They don't call themselves fascists. Do you call them fascists? I mean, depends who you're talking about. I think Milo, Steve their goal is to build power for the nationalist right. Whether you agree with him or not, Steve Bannon, he served at the highest level of government. I think it'd be interesting to hear him speak on campus, to challenge his ideas. Like, do you think we could convince him of a different set of ideas? Maybe not, but you could at least hear what he has to say. I think everyone's already heard what he has to say, so uh, for example, Breitbart News, they represent a very distinct and clear break from classical conservatism. It's really about singling out certain groups to target and repress. In the 2016-17 academic school year, 25 speakers were disinvited to college campuses due to pressures from the left, while four speakers were disinvited due to pressures from the right. A 2018 Gallup poll found that 10% of college students say violence is either sometimes or always acceptable when shutting down controversial speakers. And more than one-third of students support shouting down speakers to drown out their messages. And many student activists do not appear to have an issue with the censorship of deemed hate speech. Here's what one student activist at UC Berkeley said in an interview with the Wall Street Journal. I'm not here to be threatened. Who's threatening you? I think the alt-right is threatening us. I think the administration is complicit. One of the conditions under which free speech is not acceptable is if it disrupts the environment that is supposed to be protected, which is educational. The history here is that the free speech movement actually just did disrupt classes when people were protesting the Vietnam War. I think if you're disrupting a space in order to make it more inclusive, I think that that is necessary. If you're disrupting a space in order to advocate dehumanization, I don't think that's the same at all. College students argue that limiting free speech, such as implementing hate speech restrictions, trigger warnings, or safe spaces, improves the campus climate for all students particularly those in marginalized groups. That same 2018 Gallup poll found that nearly one-third of U.S. college students wanted campuses to prevent certain speech that was considered offensive or biased in order to, quote, create a positive learning environment for all students. 25% of college students reported that they felt uncomfortable on campus due to comments they heard about their race, ethnicity, or religion. Now, some say safe spaces provide an environment where students can feel fully free and supported to be themselves. For many students of color and those with other marginalized identities, these spaces can be a critical opportunity for them to find community and learn how to use their voice. Critics say that both safe spaces and trigger warnings infringe on First Amendment rights. They warn that restrictions on free speech limit a student's ability to learn from conflict and engage with opposing views. Take this statistic. An increasing number of students believe that their college campus prevents people from saying what they believe because others may find it offensive. In 2016, 54% of students responded that they either strongly or somewhat agree with that statement. And the next year, that number went up seven points. But some student activists are undeterred. They say that students deserve to have a campus that feels like home, 
that they're not looking for a place to find opposing views. Other students say that these limitations give reprieve for students who are silenced in classroom discussions or have to defend their experiences in order to be taken seriously. In a safe space or on a campus whose climate limits expression or hate speech, they say that students can find support and grow into their own identities. And although some college students say that they are looking for an open campus environment, a majority of students favor policies that can be seen as restricting expression. Nearly three quarters of students support policies that prohibit the use of slurs or other offensive language. And 83% want to establish specific areas that are designated as free speech zones. But how does this translate into the world after college? Let's broaden our view a little more. Some experts and scholars are proposing a new kind of safe space, a hate speech law that would encompass the entire United States. One argument says that the U.S. Constitution was intended to protect all of its citizens, and that hate speech alienates at least some of them. Talia Klein-Perez is a professor at Sapir College. She wrote this in an op-ed. Quote, the First Amendment is not about speech. It is meant to ensure that those inhabiting America are safe and can express themselves as they see fit. The American ethos is that of a melting pot. Being multiracial is one of its core features. By this interpretation, Ms. Perez asserts that all members of American society should be protected by the First Amendment and safe from hate. She also presents the argument that hate speech is violent in nature and can cause direct and indirect physical and psychological harm. She wrote, quote, some offensive remarks may seem harmless, but they can snowball into more volatile forms. Once speech reaches an extreme, it becomes too late to avoid its dangerous consequences. A professor at Northeastern University concurs, saying, quote, if words can cause stress, and if prolonged stress can cause physical harm, then certain types of speech can be a form of violence, unquote. Finally, Ms. Perez says that the purpose of law is not only to regulate the government, but also to establish norms and values. She writes that the government needs to draw a red line on principle against hatred and intolerance. If America is to remain a leader in the free world, she says, tolerance, freedom, and respect must be distinguished from hatred, racism, and acts of violence. Richard Stengel was the State Department's Undersecretary for Public Diplomacy and Public Affairs from 2013 to 2016. And three years later, he wrote an op-ed entitled, Why America Needs a Hate Speech Law. In this opinion piece, he writes that while the First Amendment protects the thought we hate, it shouldn't allow for speech that could cause violence against one group from another. Stengel writes, quote, In an age where everyone has a megaphone, that seems like a design flaw. It is important to remember that our First Amendment doesn't just protect the good guys. Our foremost liberty also protects any bad actors who hide behind it to weaken our society. Stengel argues that the First Amendment was made for a simpler era. And when Justice Douglas called for a marketplace of ideas, Stengel says that he could not have foreseen what the internet would bring. He writes, quote, On the internet, truth is not optimized. On the web, it's not enough to battle falsehood with truth. Truth doesn't always win. In the age of social media, the marketplace model doesn't work. A 2016 study by Stanford University found that 82% of middle school students couldn't tell the difference between sponsored content and a news story and only a quarter of high schoolers could distinguish between a verified news site and one that spreads misinformation. It seems impossible, Stengel argues, that the truth could always emerge. So, Stengel writes that, quote, hate speech has a less violent but nearly as damaging impact in another way. It diminishes tolerance. It enables discrimination. And isn't that, by definition, speech that undermines the values that the First Amendment was designed to protect? Fairness? due process, equality before the law? Mr. Stengel asserts that all speech is not equal, and where truth cannot drive out lies, we must add new guardrails. Hate speech, he and his supporters say, undermines the very values of the fair marketplace of ideas that the First Amendment was designed to protect. I don't know about you, but that's a lot to take in and a lot to consider. So if you're still hanging in with me, Thank you. Free speech, its history, and its legal boundaries are topics that I find endlessly fascinating. So before we go, let's review. On side A, we explored the argument that all speech, including hate speech, should be protected. People who side with this perspective say that there is real value in knowing what your fellow citizens think, and that it's even more, not less, important when what they think is considered abhorrent. They argue that by censoring hate speech, you don't actually reduce the amount of hate crimes or hate speech in this country. And in fact, you may make it harder to eradicate hate or for social justice groups to be heard. 
On side B, we explored the argument from the other side, that only some speech but not hate speech should be protected. People on this side say that hate speech is inherently violent and thus causes physical and psychological harm to those it's aimed at, and this consequence makes it ineligible for free speech protections. They argue that censoring hate speech sends a message for the kind of culture we endorse here in the United States, one where tolerance, freedom, and respect are protected more than hatred, racism, and acts of violence. But what do you think? Is there a place for hate speech in the United States? Does banning hate speech help or does it hurt? Let me know your thoughts on these questions or anything I talked about in today's episode by shooting me a text or leaving me a voicemail. You can reach We The Voters at 773-658-9492. You can also email me at wethevotersproject at gmail.com. Your stories and your perspectives may be used in an upcoming episode of the podcast or in another part of the We The Voters site. If you want to stay in touch with me between episodes, I keep this conversation going on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find me on Facebook at We The Voters Project, on Twitter at Hi We The Voters, and on Instagram at We The Voters. We The Voters is a project supported by the people, and if you like what you heard today, please consider joining my Patreon community. Donations start at just $3 a month, and it unlocks loads of exclusive content. You can donate at patreon.com slash we the voters. That's patron with an E dot com slash we the voters. And if you want to support We the Voters without spending a cent, hit subscribe and leave a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Or tell a friend about the show. Those are the two main ways that this project will grow, and it truly means so much to me. Everything I talked about in this week's episode is linked in the show notes, which you can find on the blog at wethevotersproject.com. I'll be back here on your feed next Wednesday with a discussion about the media. But until then, I'm Emily Kate, and this was We the Voters.